how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Courtney Lilly's writing credits include Invader Zim, Arrested Development, Everybody Hates Chris, My Boys, The Cleveland Show, and Blackish, among others. In this interview, we go into the weeds about writing comedy, uncover the rhythms of a television show, talk about universal needs in storytelling, discuss the writer's room, and talk about the legacy of Blackish as the series comes to a close. You can also find more info on Blackish when we spoke with creator Kenya Barris in episode 227, and both of these interviews are available on the Creative Screenwriting website. interesting because I don't know if I immediately knew I wanted to be a screenwriter. I started off um, as a journalist. I grew up outside of Philadelphia um, for the most part. And I, uh, and I got a job right out of college at a newspaper in Rhode Island, the Providence Journal Bulletin. I knew I wanted to tell stories. I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't know how to do it. And so it had to look like something that, that had a definite paycheck behind it. So I chose journalism at the time, you know, because that was an unsinkable ship that was certainly not going to go away at any point, right? That's how you end up making the big bucks, uh, joining a daily newspaper. Um, but no, I, I, I got there. It was an amazing job. I met amazing people, but I also learned I didn't want to be a, uh, a journalist. I needed to find another way to write. Um, it gave me a lot of good habits, writing on deadline, you know, being, you know, uh, uh, somebody who was quick with, with writing and curious and really also being able to investigate points of views that weren't my own you know mm. so that was really important but I moved back to New York where I went to school and from there I was just floating around working on the internet because it's the late 90s and everybody had jobs at pets.com or whatever it was cosmo.com and all that kind of stuff whatever it was I worked for a sports gambling site basically and uh I I tried to figure things out and I mentioned to a friend that I was interested in writing television but again it's the 90s the internet isn't what it is now and nobody I didn't know how to get there. I didn't know that you moved out to LA and became a PA and then you became, or you worked in, a, in an agency mailroom. I didn't know any of those paths. Um, but my friend who I mentioned that to offhand, 
uh, at some point learned that Nickelodeon had a writing fellowship program. And so I went to a bookstore in New York and I bought a bunch of Frasier scripts and I, uh, and I ended up writing a spec of The Simpsons. Um, and I applied for this fellowship. And then in the spring of 2000, I got laid off from the job. I had, you know, convincing gamblers to bet on the Tigers on whatever kind of thing it was, baseball, which I didn't follow that well. It was just really losing people money. Um, and then a couple months later, I got the, the opportunity because the Nickelodeon Fellowship, um, I was awarded it. So it was the first year of the fellowship and I got to move out to LA and that kind of got my, my feet on the ground, at least learning or at least the geography of Los Angeles, a little bit about the business and a little bit of like the Hollywood writing culture. So I would assume, you know, inspect scripts have kind of changed over the years, but I would assume you're a pretty big Simpsons fan to write that. How was it? Was it difficult to write comedy? Like, did you know it was funny turning it in? Uh, this is, I'm going to say yes. But, you know, it's interesting because it's like, I, I never had the guts to be a standup. You know, I thought about it. I remember there was a moment and, and you always need wins, right? And, you know, maybe it's a coach who tells you that you're good at something, or maybe if you're a comic, people laughing at you, you know, or your jokes or whatever, you need something to tell you that, like, this is worth pursuing a little bit. And I remember there was a sketch, I, 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 and, you know, again, I wasn't involved with improv. I didn't know any of this kind of stuff. I knew I was interested in comedy, but I had no real right way to get toward it. And, I, and right before I left Rhode Island, um, when I was working in the newspaper, a very, very good friend of mine um, did stand up for the first time. And he was funny and I was funny. And I watched him do stand up and I was like, oh, wait, he's really doing this. Okay. So I started, and I knew I wasn't a stand up, but I re started writing down like sketch ideas. And Chris Rock had a sketch show and talk show at that time in the 90s. And I remember one of the sketch ideas I wrote down, they had done, right? They ended up doing it. I wrote down like, worked out a couple little things of it and then whatever, it just sits in a drawer. But a certain amount of time later, they end up doing a version of it, right? And it's like, it's just the way the world works, sketch. It's not a genius, brilliant idea. It's not something that was unique to my experience. It was just like a funny idea that they executed. And I remember taking that and going like, oh, if I pitched that, that, that was a good enough idea. You know, you have a couple little things. And so like with The Simpsons, the way it was, was I just watched a lot of TV. There was a funny, it was like Jeremy Piven's show called Cupid that was on that time in ABC, I thought was funny. You know, and I just was watching, you know, South Park had just started recently in the in late 90s at that point. And I was just like watching a lot of comedy and I, and I just got the rhythms of it, you know? It's just like being, I, I, right after I got my first real comedy job, I bought a banjo and I was taking lessons over at McCabe's in West LA and I'd play it and I'd kind of practice and I'd learn it. And my, my instructor kept saying to me, play it musically, play it musically. And I would play it just like thud, 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 thud. There was no musicality to it. But with writing comedy, I knew what the music was, if that makes sense, you know? I could hear the music of it. So like, I, it, it, it made sense. I could see the structure of it. You know, I knew that the Simpsons often, whether I, even if I didn't have the vocabulary for it, I knew they would often do like what was like a first act mislead, you know, and they would right. start off kind of like in a, in a bit, you know, whether it was a game show or a TV bit or something kind of off the topic to, to come into the show. You could see the structure of it kind of laying out. And I just copied that structure you know and i sat there and i'm like i know they do this i know they do this i know they go to commercial here and you know and i hadn't taken any 
like writing classes or story classes. I just watched a lot of TV and tried to emulate what I'd watched, you know, like the way you see a kid dance, you know, like whenever they're picking up all the moves, you're just kind of watching and going with it. And it's rough, but like you're able to approximate it. And I knew that like you needed a joke. You needed something that was going to make it funny. And it, and you just, and I'd seen the characters so much and knew the voices. So I don't know. It was like, I was extraordinarily lucky. And like, again, writing specs was something that was easier to do because I wasn't trying to create characters out of whole cloth and say, here's why they're funny. Somebody could read it and say, that's a good joke for Homer. You know, that's a good joke for principal, you know, you know, like for Chief Wiggum or, you know, principal Skinner or whatever it was, it was actually easier. You could get another win out of it, you know? And so like, and also, it, I wasn't a stand-up. It wasn't like pe- I, I had to perform it and do well, and then you would not get a laugh. I could just send it off in a package and sit there and say, like, let's see if it's good. And I got lucky, and then there were enough things that made people laugh to, to be able to continue to, to, to win that fellowship and, and move on, you know? Did you say, like, earlier in your career, and I would assume now, I mean, did you look for different avenues of comedy? I mean, your, your list here is Invader Zim, Arrested Development. You're reading Fraser scripts, which are more like a farce, you know, yeah. like a traditional sitcom. You know, it's funny because it's like I, when I started, like, it's funny, everybody, I didn't know I was going to be a comedy writer in a lot of ways. I'm like, I'm like, I'm very much a writer in a lot of ways, you know, like I, I, and in, in, in my early twenties, I was discovering what that was going to look like. I love comedy. I love TV. I always love TV. I like, and like I said, in the nineties, when I was working in, 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 in Rhode Island, I would just watch TV a lot. It was the first time living by myself at home. And I'd sit there, I'd be like, Oh, the Drew Carey show was very funny that night. Or when I was growing up in the nineties and like watching the wonder years or watching, I like literally or cheers and like Seinfeld and telling, like, I remember being obsessed with Seinfeld when I was in high school, you know, and, you know, obviously before it became the real phenomenon, I'm talking like the first and second seasons of it before it becomes a phenomenon it is, you know, and trying to convince my friends. But I, but again, it wasn't an avenue to a job and I didn't know any, so I just didn't think about it. But I thought about other kinds of writing. I was like, if I had more courage and was better at prose, I'd probably have tried writing novels, you know? And so I thought about really where I was in the avenues as a writer, but this is where like the journalism thing comes into it. Like I'm always investigating where things happen and where things come from. So like Invaders Zen is a show like that was because of that Nickelodeon fellowship and the internship and they placed me there. And, you know, Jonah Vasquez, these graphic novels, I didn't know who Jonah was at that point, but I started reading his novels like immediately and I got his point of view and how funny he is and how his sensibility. And like, I was not a, you know, like a, like a, like a, a big graphic novel, comic book, sci-fi, you know, fantasy. Those were not my universes, but those are the universes of the guys that work there. So I had to, adapt to that universe you know i had to sit there and and do research and figure it out and figure out where where i fit within it the stuff that i really loved you know like i would never and like again i was younger at that point i had more free time you know and see oh these things that they love that's you know i'd never seen terry gilliam's brazil at that point you know but i had to go see it go watch it you know and so i was playing a lot of catch-up but it was also like knowing that like ultimately the best versions of all those stories and just like there's a very human experience thread through them all. There's obviously like sci-fi things that are just sci-fi, you know? And it, and, and it really, really just opened up a world to me and like, you know, and, and, and also like allow me to access the things that like, you know, growing up, I watched the, the David Lynch Dune a ton because my buddy was really into it. So I'd sit there and think about that and see my own kind of experience and how those things all played together. Um, but versatility was kind of one of my calling cards, you know, and I never like sat there and said, this is who I am as a comic writer. You know, I loved 
still love Woody Allen movies like Annie Hall. You know, I, I saw the comedy in that. And, you know, one of my dear friends who's also a comedy writer, he grew up kind of knowing he wanted to be a comedy writer or at least an actor, improviser. And, you know, so like Monty Python was a big deal for him, right? I never quite had that experience, but I, but when I thought about it, I would sit there and go like, oh, you know what it was? It was like a lot of the Keenan Ivory Wayans movies. You know, it was like the I'm going to get you suckers and the, and you know, Robert Townsend Hollywood shuffle. And I was never a huge Saturday Night Live fan. I didn't stay up for it that late. I kind of didn't get a lot of it. I got the big things, but it was never like my obsession, but I watched a lot of them in living color. So like, it was really kind of like this hybrid Creole, but I knew what was funny and what I liked and to grab parts of it to help form my comedic identity as I went forward and to sit there and say, because a joke's a joke's a joke's a joke's a joke in a lot of ways. And it's all in the setup line. You know, Woody Allen wrote about it in the, his, you know, the, the biography of him, or he talks about it in the biography of him that Eric Lacks wrote. It is, you can make the setup line work. You know, in Frasier and Niles, you see those two characters were so perfect because like they were like, as much as we knew Frasier, you sit there and they, they created Niles who was more Frasier than Frasier to put Frasier in the middle of his dad, you know, instead of right. Frasier being just top dog all the time, like, and you sit there and as you construct these kind of like the way stories work or you deconstruct how stories work, you sit there and go, that's similar to Hollywood Shuffle where, you know, he's sitting there and, and like Robert Townsend's character has got a boss who doesn't understand where he is. He's above some people, but below some people. And you start mm -hmm. seeing all the commonalities of storytelling that is in the threads of the things you like. And, 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 and then you're just allowed to be exposed to people, exposed to more, you know? So later in your career, you worked on My Boys, Cleveland Show, Blackish. Did you always have the luxury of working on a show that was on the air? Like, could you always go back and watch episodes? If you were to start and there wasn't anything produced yet, and you just had the script, which you may have already done, how's that different for you? It's interesting. Like, you know, My Boys was a show I worked on. All I saw was the pilot. So we started relatively early. Most of the times when you're working on a show, you know, at least it used to be. Now they're kind of doing it a little differently with mini rooms and all that kind of stuff. You you usually have the pilot to go off of, you know? Um, and then it's kind of just like, it's kind of fun because you're part of the creative building process of what's going on. And you're sitting there and like, the thing that's in TV that's different than film, I think, is that television really needs to maintain its space as a writer's medium because you're, you're with the characters for more than three hours or even like, you know, or nine hours or even in a, in a multi-universe and, you know, Marvel universe, like how many ever hours that person has at screen time? Like how many hours did we spend with Tony Soprano? How many right. hours did we spend with Walter White? You know, and so like that comes through the writers continually mining what makes that character interesting. And the thing that it works out as, it is often the analogy I use, it's like, it is like the sculptor with, with the marble, you know? You sit there and you gotta find the statue within it. And, and in season one, Walter White is one thing. And then you keep defining that thing so it gets more and more and more and more refined and polishing it and doing that kind of thing. So like the closer you are to the ground level of that, the more you can sit there and kind of have your own fingerprints and marks in it. You know, you can sit there and going like, I think he's like this. Oh, it feels like he's a, like a chin like this. And you can kind of get like that and continue to refine. So, you know, like with my boys, it was interesting because I remember having my meeting with Betsy Thomas and, you know, I just started talking about friendships and I started talking about like how there's this guy that I'm very good friends with now, but like we started talking about the beginning of our friendship because I met him through two other friends. And there was the day that he called me directly and right, i was like right. 
what do I do with this? Do I answer this? What's going on? I just always saw you through the other guy. And I remember telling that story and that was like, like she was like, oh, that's very funny. We could use that. It's integral to what we did. We actually did a version of it, you know, and then, you know, and then we told the story about how like the first time it was my buddy, Max, Max and I just hung out by ourselves, you know, and realizing that we had never really done that without intermediaries, all that kind of stuff. And it was a fun building block for the characters, you know? And so, you know, sometimes it's almost a little easier not to have all the the stuff kind of there already because you can throw a little bit more of yourself into it, you know? So as you kind of move from like those early spec scripts to writer's rooms, did you have any misconceptions or false beliefs about what a writer's room was? I, I you know, I've never... the first time I'd really thought a lot about it because my first job was Arrested Development in the fall of 2003 I, and Vader Zim was like I was it was like a fellowship an internship I worked there um, but it was also like it was not a traditional writer's room you're just kind of hanging out and they'd write stuff and stuff would come out but it was like a room mm-hmm. so the first time I was really in a room was on Arrested Development and and I think because still it's the early 2000s even the idea of a writer's room it was like, it wasn't like, if you sit there, like, it wasn't like you'd say, picture a flamingo. And you can sit there like, that's a flamingo. Like, I don't think even to this day, people know what a writer's room kind of is supposed to be or look like. Maybe we've seen it on Larry Sanders or other kind of things that have like more recently given us kind of, you know, obviously Larry Sanders before it was in the nineties, but given us like ideas of what it looks like. But the concept of it was at least to me a lot more vague. So when I walked in for the first time, was on a job. And I had no idea what to expect, none. I didn't know the terminology. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know we would have, I remember they gave me an office and I'm just like, and I'm just like a staff writer. I'm always like, and they're like, do you want to paint it? Do you want to do this? And I'm just like, wait, what? I didn't know all the power dynamics. I didn't know, I was just just new to all of it, <laughs> you know? And, and really just terrified of having it all taken away. <laughs> and so I worked my ass off, you know? So I had no, and, and like the, I talk about this all the time and it's not, I'm not being hyperbolic or comedic. I was the worst at it. You know, I was, it was a room of incredibly talented people. We had a small staff, eight writers who were full-time and I was the worst at it and it sucked and it sucked being the worst. And, you know, and I did not know the, the only way to, to, to get around it was to go through it. And so I just worked very hard to get better. And I got extraordinarily lucky. And I could say this now because I don't know. It was like, it was all a mystery to me in a lot of ways. And I can say this now because I, I did a podcast with some of the writers from Arrested Development a couple of years back. Uh, and we hadn't seen each other. Well, I hadn't seen them in several years and all that kind of stuff. And we're just talking about the first years. And I got lucky and I said, like, it's basically was like grad school for me. I was learning from all these people. And, and then to get a paycheck on top of it to do this, to, 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 to learn from masters at this craft was, it was amazing. And I just kept deferring and saying that. And one of the writers, Abraham Higginbotham said, he's like, well, no, you know, you wrote a draft. And I read that and I was just like, that's good. It's good for staff writer. I think we use some of the stuff. And for me, the experience was in completely one way because I was just like, like, again, I knew what I used it for was a marker to where I needed to get. You know, I knew that what was happening was great and it was funny. And I knew I wasn't there yet. And I knew just like if I played sports growing up and I'm, if I'm watching basketball or I'm on the court with people and I'm like, I can't run with these guys. I need to be able to run with these guys to have the career that I want. So it always did set a level of standards and incredibly high. And so for two years, you know, I was the worst, but I got better. 
you know, so that like, I wouldn't be in a position to be the worst, you know, and, and it was, so, um, I was, I was just naive and, and, and because I worked, I did well on the page. Being in a writer's room is so different than being a writer. And as a writer, you're in control of everything, you know, and you're like, you're, you're laboring over words and doing all this kind of stuff. And then I got into a writer's room and I realized, oh, I may not ever write, you know, there are writers who don't write, you know, you don't write an episode. You gotta be given an episode to write, you know, and that's often for the more senior writers. And so I had to learn to actually be able to tell stories verbally and to contribute verbally and to think and make jokes and pitch verbally. That was what I was learning in a lot of ways and being able to translate the speed with which I could tell a story in my own head and, and get that out to, to people to help the collective pursuit of the story, you know? Was there anything um, non-traditional you did to get better? Or was it just more about like working as hard as you can all the time? I mean, I did, I mean, like there was things that I did I, would, I mean, like I just worked all the time in a lot of ways, but I would say one thing I definitely did is I watched the shows and, and, and I talk about it to writer's assistants a lot, you know, and I was never a writer's assistant. So my first room experience was like the high stakes of like, are you contributing to the show or are you not? But I would watch shows and when I was writing things and like, or like a Larry Sanders, whatever it was, and I would diagram the episode. I would sit there and, and go like, all right, Hank walks in and says this in this room, in this scene and all that kind of stuff, blah, 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 right. blah, blah. You know, I would really, and, and before I would start writing, I would just break down what is happening in all these shows. And, you know, and I tell writers assistants and I tell writers this all the time. It's like, you have a favorite show? Watch five episodes of it and transcribe it. Like literally sit there and say, here, interior this, interior that. You will have written five good drafts, you know, of, of a show. Right. And you will have seen how it's kind of gone. And that's a starting point. Even if it's not your voice and your ideas, if you do that five times on one show, you sit there and go like, oh, I start to see the patterns. I start to see the rhythms. I start to see how this goes. Mm -hmm. And you just, it's the, instead of just like intellectualizing and doing it, like physically start making the thing, write it down and do that and go through it. And you're like, cause it is not like a muscle memory thing, but like, you know, television is very artisanal more than I think an art in a lot of ways, because we're making a thing that has to serve a purpose and a function, just like a table or a chair. And obviously there's art in tables and chairs and all that other kind of stuff, their design and all that other kind of stuff. But you gotta have the fundamentals. It's gotta serve that purpose first. So often the structure is visible, you know, just like the legs on a table is visible. So get good at doing that, you know, learn how to sit there. And, you know, it's like every training montage we ever see. It's like they're doing the work, they're doing the work, they're doing the work. And it's not the, the end result that you're really spending a lot of time with. It's being prepared for when you get that opportunity. So when I got to write that script, it ended up not sucking in a way. It's because I had spent so much time, again, from watching TV before I wrote my Simpsons spec off the Fraser scripts, all that kind of stuff, understanding how a story needed to be built for television. And, and really, you know, breaking down like you would diagram a sentence, how a show would work so that you can mimic that show and that voice. So I'm not just writing, you know, character, you know, so, you know, that's how you make the character sound different. That's how make you understand the character's voice is because you're just practicing. It's mimicry, you know? And until you get good enough to know how you want it to sound, it's mimicry, you know? So you've got 20 years of experience. More recently, you've done the Cleveland show and Blackish. Yeah. Has anything like surprised you? Do you have conversations about who these audiences are for? Like 
you grew up watching predominantly white shows, but now you've yeah. got some more like all black casts. How do you guys yeah. think about that? And I interviewed Kenya Barris about a year ago. So we've had some yeah. conversations there, but how do you think about it for audiences? It's interesting. I would love, I mean, now I need to hear that podcast. I'd love to hear what you would say about that. Cause it's like, I've gone through very, I think it's very hard to write comedy as a black writer. And I think it's hard to write comedy as any kind of minority um, women, everything, because the thing you have to do with comedy is you have to be willing to not have a certain amount of dignity. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's not, it is like, you know, it's like when you go to a stand-up show and it's like the audience, the, the comic is almost begging you. Like you can feel that energy. And if you're not comfortable with that or they're not, it's not working, it turns you off. It's like that cringe thing, you know, that people right. talk about sometimes. And for communities that have had, you know, whether they're like, you know, LGBTQ or all these kind of things where dignity is a very front and center thing that you're fighting for, I think it gets very hard to do comedy because like that's a way that like you can be kind of like you know like degraded is is through forms of comedy so audience is something i'm always thinking about i'm thinking about it when you know Chappelle left Chappelle show you know 20 years ago we're always thinking about audience at with that in mind i i think i'm trying to think less about audience right now because, and maybe it's because of where I am professionally, maybe it's because of where we are in the world, maybe it's because there's so many shows. I sit there and I think about the weight, you know, we get, you know, I'm doing a series of interviews because Blackish is wrapping up and a lot of them are asking about legacy. And I, and I don't know, it feels at a certain point very Ozymandias to sit there and talk about a legacy of a thing, you know, because it's just like, well, shit, man, in, in 15 years, is everybody gonna care about any of this? You know, like, it, like I, I try not to get too much into that, but um, it is, as I think about audiences now, I, I, I know I want to write, and it's hard because I'm not trying to say I want to write raceless, you know, mm -hmm. even though there's a, like, I, 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 I want to, I, but I'm also, and it's funny because I was talking to the woman I'm running Gronish with, Zakia, almost exactly about this thing yesterday. I think I want to write what I'm interested in. And the reason I'm thinking less about audiences now is because I think it's easier to do than it's ever been for a, a black creative artist. Even if it's like niche, you know, before I would have to sit there and say, I need an audience that's X big to exist, you know? But now with the streamers and niche programming, I don't know. I don't know. You know, if I'm making a Game of Thrones mm -hmm. kind of, sure, maybe so, who knows, you know? And like, and, you know, there are black creatives who are operating in the Marvel universe. These things that were used to be the goals to sit there and say like, well, here's why I know I've really made it. A lot of those barriers of like are are, are in the in, in the midst of kind of crumbling, you know. So that's all very positive. So then it's like, well, what do I want to do, and how do I want to write, and what do I want to say? And I've always been somebody who's written from the, the place of ideas, and I write from ideas that like you know, I'm a big fan of the of the country music, well, kind of country music artist uh, Jason Isbell, who I think is just one of the great American songwriters and great American writers in general. He does like a interview with the writer George Saunders that I just love. I just love hearing writers talk about writing, as you can probably tell. And and Jason Isbell will write about characters, you know, write about like familial relationships. You know, there's one song, Decoration Day, when he's with the drive-by truckers, you know, and it, it's just basically about going to visit his his father's grave, you know, and the kind of like, you know, and, and the, the resentment he has in this individual. And I'm like, that doesn't have anything to do with race or class 
it's universal, you know, like our relationships with our parents, with our friends, with our yeah. husband, disappointment about where we end up, all that other kind of stuff, all the rest of it, because he's got a little Southern draw and he's talking about decoration day, which is like a Southern kind of holiday, all those things. That's the details that makes it specific. That is the job of a writer. And for me, I'd like, I want to work instead of saying as a black writer, how do I write something that everybody can understand? I want to say, what do I want to say first? And then I'll color it with my details and allow the audience to determine the rest of it, you know, and to sit there and say that like, oh, well, this is a fine piece of black television because of this thing you did. And I'm like, I'm just, I just, I just, and I, and, and I even make that distinction because I'm not trying to make colorless, raceless television. I'm not trying to do any of that. I'm just allowing the audience to interact with what I'm doing in a way, you know, I've always thought about, and this, I just want it to be a joke. And again, and it's the most time consuming, impossible, impossible, improbable joke would be for me to write an entire novel, 300 pages that eventually human beings read. And at the end of it, the last line is just, oh, by the way, every character in this novel was black. That's kind of my way to like, right. that would be the way to do the joke and the gag of it all. Um, but I think as far as audiences, I, 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 I don't know if they're more sophisticated, less sophisticated. I know my interaction with them is, has to be with what I give them, you know, mm -hmm. and, 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 and being lucky enough to be at this point in my career where I can make those kind of choices and I'm being supported to sit there and try some shit out see how it goes. I'm excited to see what will happen because, you know, I think most people, when it comes to, when it goes audiences, don't really know what they want. They want to be challenged sometimes. They want to laugh sometimes. They want to feel all the time. And I think that's what we can give them. Um, and it's my job to, to try to translate the feelings I have in the world into the, 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 the projects I create. Hmm. Something you said, I just interviewed a writer named Wiko Lin and he was talking about, I know him. yeah, he, yeah. he said that a funny thing is if you think about get out and crazy rich Asians, they're the same plot about meeting your, you're meeting your spouse's parents, yeah. that universality. So I, was, yeah. I, I guess what's confusing is like, cause you feel like because it's a visual medium, you have to introduce the niche audience that it's for black audiences or whatever, whether or not the story has anything to do with that, or the themes have yeah. anything to do with that. Uh, you know, it, but that comes down to marketing, you know, and that's right. the thing why, why I don't try to think about the, the audience. Cause that's like, to me, that's more of a marketing question. And yeah. if Michael, and like, look, they're real deal, practical things. If you're trying to make, you know, hey, I'm trying to make this sci-fi fantasy epic and it's going to cost $20 million to do every episode, <laughs> you know? They're yeah. going to be like, cool, very cool. Hey, how are you planning on paying for that? Making sure our money is recouped. You know, I understand right. the real deal of what's going on. So I also know, I, I think my creative process needs to be separate from my business process, you know? Right. And so right. like, and I, and you know, whether you're thinking of whatever kind of market or thing you're going to as a niche thing, I have to sit there and say, here's the story I want to tell. Here's how I want to tell this story. Here's how I want to deal with this story. Here's what I'm feeling. And, you know, sometimes a story I'm able to deal with, deal with is, best con is best conveyed as a short story. Maybe it's a short film. Maybe it's a feature. Maybe who knows? But that's, that's going back to the ideas I am as a writer, because those practicalities do very much come into play. And if I'm sitting there and I'm like asking people for $200 million to make something, yeah, they should expect their expenses to be recouped. And I still live in the real world that we all live in. And I'm going to deal with whether there are true prejudices or not, whether it's difficulties in marketing, whether they're just financial things. I have to deal with the gravity of all of that. Um, but then it's like, well, 
okay, just like I'm, I, I, it takes six hours to fly from Los Angeles to New York, then, and I can't expect to be there in 30 minutes, I have to deal with the realities of what's going on. So then I say, okay, is this story smaller? Is this story something that, and that is an intimate kind of thing that like nobody, if it doesn't reach 200 million people, nobody's going to feel like they, they won't be able to send their kids to high school or college, you know? And so like, it, it, I, I start very, I start in the emotional place about the story how it needs to manifest, how it needs to go. If there's something incredibly important, who knows, maybe there is, you could take a Marlon James novel and turn it into this giant, you know, Black Panther-like epic that requires all this money. But like Black Panther is a perfect example. It's not a niche movie, you know? Exactly. And like, maybe it took the backing of Marvel and the history of the, the comic to get it to that place. But like, you know, I think even as we see so many things going on, broadening with the ideas of what, what's niche and not niche, um, is is something that's kind of naturally expanding. Um, but I also know I need to be practical, you know? Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.